Hey, it's another edition of the Terry's Talking Podcast. I'm David Campbell, sports manager at Cleveland.com, the host and joining me as he does every week, Mr. Terry Pluto, award-winning columnist from The Plain Dealer and Cleveland.com. Terry, what's going on? Here we are, opening week for baseball. Cavs going to the playoffs. And I'll tell you right now, yeah, there is. And good things going on. So we just got news before we are taping this on Tuesday afternoon about the first pitch and other festivities for opening day. Uh, Mm -hmm. Travis Kelsey and his mom, Donna, are going to throw out the first pitches for the home opener. And then, I know this is something very close to your heart, Terry, they are going to have a patch that they're going to wear for opening day to honor John Adams. And it's uh, it's really well done, very classy, and it's uh, a tribute to him. And uh, I, I know that's something we talked about when John mm-hmm. passed. And I don't know if you want to talk about that for a minute in terms of the appropriateness of that and kind of was that what you expected? I thought they would do something like that because when you're honoring Adams, you're really honoring the fans. I thought it was cool in Oakland. I don't know if you saw that. They showed on the broadcast late at night that uh, there was a bet sheet there with a drum and some of the drummers from the A's, and you certainly could hear them among the 3,000 people that was said were there, uh, were honoring him. He was the pioneer of the drummers, and I thought that was cool. The outpouring of just uh, love and uh, enjoyment and nostalgia that John elicited, you know, even before he died, when I wrote some of the stories about him in the nursing home, uh, is unprecedented, at least in Cleveland sports that I could think of. There's no um, quote, super fan or whatever that would come anywhere near that. And it also is a testimony that when you write something a couple times, very flattering about that, you know, here comes the email that says he was drunk at a pizza parlor or whatever. None of that. I did. There wasn't a single negative thing about, um, you know, boy, what a jerk he was, you know, that kind of thing. I mean, his ex-wife was at his funeral. I talked to her. I mean, so, um, it just is a testimony to his character. And, uh, that's one of the things that I would like, you know, when, when any of us, okay. So yeah, it's, it's great. He played the drums at all those games, but, uh, whether it's a special needs people that he taught at, uh, Cleveland state swimming, other things, that's really cool. And it's just a shame that uh, John couldn't have made one more home opener. Yeah, for sure. And and one of the things we've talked about with John was how organic it was. It, he just kind of did mm-hmm. it because he wanted to and thought it would be something that, that would be fun and, and a great way for him to enjoy the games. And I'm really, you talk about what happened in Oakland, I'm really curious to see what the Cleveland fans will come up with in terms mm-hmm. of their own tributes to him. I think that'll be really uh, touching to see how that, how that comes to pass. So, um, all right, Terry, on the field, the Guardians are off to a red hot start, four and one heading into tonight's game in Oakland. Uh, I guess to start, why don't we just get some general impressions of what you've seen so far, and and we can talk a little bit more in depth after that. But what's your general impression of what you've seen? When you think about the fact they opened in Seattle, Seattle was a team they could not figure out last year at all. I forgot whether they were one and six or whatever it was against them, but uh, they really just looked helpless against Seattle. And that they found different ways to win those games, whether it was, I think, two to nothing in one game and another one was an extra inning. Um, I think it was six to five. Then they won nine to four. Um, so they they did it in different ways. Uh, the biggest thing that's happened so far is Savali's seven scoreless innings. I would not have anticipated that coming. I remember I saw him in spring training, and it was a weird game. He threw a scoreless inning. Then the next game, somebody hit a rocket up the up the middle. It hits the bottom of his shoe, bounces off. 
He pitches the rest of that inning and a part of the next inning, and he was just so-so after that. He assists these five. You know, this is a guy, he's had the wrist, he's had the shoulder, he's had all these injuries. So I was waiting for that to turn into something. It did not. He kept telling me after the game that he was fine and that, you know, he feels good about the season. But I've become skeptical over the years when a guy has an extensive injury history. Uh, Sometimes he's preaching to himself, as they say. He's trying to make sure that he is okay. So, uh, But when you saw that game in Seattle and his control, seven scoreless innings, uh, that was was really – that lifted my heart. And, you know, you go back and, you know, Quan looks like he's he never missed, never missed, never missed a single. I said never missed a beat, but never missed a clutch single. Uh, you know, Romero scoring from third on that pop up that was barely past the third base bag, sliding head force into home. I mean, this really is their signature way of playing. And he's got, Francona's got these guys playing that way. And the front office also brought in players who are athletic and can play that way. Because when you look around the diamond and you have, you know, Jose doesn't look like he's athletic, but he's extremely athletic. Rosario's a really good athlete. Jimenez is a really good athlete. The whole outfield uh, can run. Even Oscar Gonzalez isn't, uh, isn't really that much of a liability out there at all. And off they go. And so it's, it's just fun to see that. And, Already, Scott Service, the, the Seattle manager, was saying something like, well, you can't go to sleep on these guys. I mean, that is really nice when you come to town and the other guys are already telling their – the other manager and coaches are saying, man, you can't go to sleep on these guys. Make sure you're on your toes. You know, it's almost like you tell somebody, whatever you do, make sure you feel that ball cleanly, get rid of it quick. That's a good way to set up a bobble. <laughs> it can <laughs> yep. kind of make – it's like, whatever you do, don't miss the free throw now. Because they're running hard. You know they're running hard down they that first baseline. They are going down hard, yep. yeah. And heaven um, help the guy that doesn't because I think the peer pressure is so strong. Oh, you better believe it. And, and guys like Rosario and, and Jose mm-hmm. will not let anything else happen uh, before it even gets to Tito. So uh, a few interesting numbers, Terry, that kind of caught my eye. The, mm-hmm. the Guardians have I think, 36 strikeouts hitting and 20 walks, which I thought was really interesting. Um, and it is only early in the season. And, and Stephen Kwan has four strikeouts and one walk, which is very mm-hmm. unlike him. And he's, yeah. still, he's still off to a great start. Um, and Miles Straw has already stolen four bases, mm-hmm. which I thought was really interesting with the he's bigger got at bases. Least one, and, he's got at least one bun hit, if not two. And they were working on that a lot in spring training, going, you can run. Why aren't you bunting? I mean, that's that's another thing. So get that going. What I've liked a couple of times, he's turned on pitches and hit uh, rockets to left field. And so that's which they really were asking him to do is be more aggressive, right? And mm-hmm. try and pull some more balls. Yep. And and I felt bad in one regard for Straub last year because I think he ended up hitting two twenty. But the assumptions the fans and some of the media is like this guy's never hit before. I mean, he was a career like two sixty five hitter before he came over in the minors. I think it's close to three hundred. Um, he doesn't have a lot of power, but to act as if he's hopeless at the plate is just not true. So hopefully, instead of being hopeless, hopefully he's on to getting back to that guy who was a pretty good hitter uh, before last season. And into going into tonight's game, Terry Batten, 313, mm-hmm. 450 on base percentage and uh, slugging percentage of 375. So the only thing I, will, I hate to bring up, but he was pretty good in April last year. That was about his only good month. <laughs> his good months were like April and September. He did hit over 300 in September to get up to 220. Um, 
So we'll see where that plays out. But uh, I'm, and you watch him in the outfield. He just he covers everything. It's uh, their defense actually has been a little shaky at times. I was surprised, but maybe that's just a. They ran to the, the cold. The weather was bad in Seattle and was really cold in Oakland. So. Yep. Glove issues, gloves breaking. Uh, Stephen Kwan was talking about how his glove wasn't broken in yet and the cold mm. weather and was having trouble with that. So it is early. So, Terry, there's a couple of guys I wanted to ask you about, and then we happen to get a question about it. And we usually save the Hey Terry questions toward the end, but I thought I'd throw this one in here. It's from Mike Armbruster, and he's from Hilton, New York. And he says, hey, Terry, it was great to meet you and Roberta Mm. at the Guardians Red Spring training game in Goodyear on March 17th. You were so gracious in answering my questions and talking about your experience as we sat near the top of Section 105. And thank you so much for sending me an autographed copy of your book, Dealing. That was so nice of you. I really enjoy your columns and am a loyal subscriber. While I'm at it, here's a question for your next podcast. Both Josh Bell and Mike Zanino were signed by the Guardians to add some pop to the batting lineup. I watched both of them play throughout March in Arizona and did not see a lot of production from either hitter. I know spring training is not necessarily the best gauge on how a player will perform, but I would have liked to have seen better results from both players during the spring. How do you think that Bell and Zanino will perform in the 2023 season? He says, go Guardians. Again, that's from Mike Armbruster. Thanks for that, Mike. So kind of two different starts here for these guys, like Mike Zanino coming up with some huge hits, batting 357. And then you've got Josh Bell, who is one um, one for 17 and has not started fast. And the cold weather certainly could be part of that, too. But uh, what have you seen from these two guys, Terry? And how do you think they kind of progress here? The one thing that's been, to me, disappointing about Zanino, I think he could do a better job blocking balls in the dirt. Maybe we've been spoiled by all these different, you know, Perez and, and Hedges and uh, some of the other catchers that have passed through here. They're just so good. Um, and Sandy Alomar is tremendous about teaching how to block. Luke Maley used to, was very good at blocking balls in the dirt. Uh, I, I think sometimes I've seen Zanino fundamentally just has not been as good as I thought he would be back there. Meantime, as you mentioned, he's sitting 350. Uh, he's at, it's one of those things where he's had a couple balls drop in. Maybe he will buy a little bit more into the Guardian way of, because you know his strikeout totals are really big for his career. Uh, I don't. Do you have the, I don't know if you have the stats up there on what he struck out yeah. this season. Yeah. All right. So it looks like. Um, let's see. Josh Bell has struck out five times, and mm-hmm. Mike Zanino has struck out two times. See, that's really good for Zanino because uh, he is a strikeout guy. So maybe he's getting the bat on the ball more, and then he's finding these bloops are, are dropping in there and everything else because he is a strong guy. You have to play him fairly deep. Uh, Bell has a start almost like when Carlos Santana was here and didn't hit very well. But if you notice, I think he's walked five or six times. And so that's one of the things he does do. I could see, though, with his kind of big swing and that, that he could be very slump prone. And I guess, obviously, he can get very hot. I know that uh, they worry about Bell defensively, his throwing is a concern that they have. That's why you're seeing more in Naylor over there. And Naylor looks terrific right now. You know, he's, of course, Naylor's a hockey player. You you know, that's, that's his, that's right up yours. So you should Used love to the that cold guy. weather. Yep. Yeah. So cold weather and, and just all that uh, energy that he brings. Zanino, I'm, I'm really encouraged because I think he will get better defensively. And, and if he keeps making contact, he's just going to hit better. Uh, Bell is a wait and see. I do like the fact that he is drawn walks at least. 
So yeah, Terry, the uh, Zanino with his three for three performance against the Mariners on Sunday, he had two doubles and a three run homer and Hoynes, he had this in his story. <laughs> How long had it been since the Cleveland catcher had three extra base hits in one game? It was Carlos Santana t- nearly 10 years ago wow. on April 7th, 2013 against the Rays. So, um, and I was curious, Terry, can you, we've been hearing this from fans for the last couple of years. How come they can't get a catcher that can hit? How come they can't mm-hmm. get a catcher that can hit? Who's the last catcher that hit over 240? The last everyday catcher for the Guardians. Who do you think it was? I looked uh, this was up. It, was it Santana? That's a good guess. Actually, Jan Gomes hit 266. Oh, that's right. He had that one really good in year. 2018, and no other yeah. Guardians catcher recently. That's right. the last he did. one to hit over 240. So. I always forget the zone. And he was a better catcher overall than I thought. In fact, uh, when Kluber went to get his first Cy Young award, he took Gomes with him to the banquet. Is that right? Mm hmm. Because <laughs> nice. he was so uh, taken with him. But actually, they went through a period of really good hitting catchers, you know, going back to Sandy Almar. They had Victor Martinez, you know, Santana. And Santana's career behind the plate was in, he started getting concussions. And then they put him at first, and they just thought that would extend his career. Just the same way. I remember one time I got into an argument actually once with Eric Wedge about this just afterwards because I knew him reasonably well. And I'm like, at that point, there was a two-year span where I believe Victor Martinez had caught more games than anybody else in baseball. And I said, why aren't you playing him more at first base or DHing him just to get him a break? Oh, he's good back there. He'll be fine. I'm like, no, he's going to break down. I mean, it's just, you know, you didn't need sports science to know that. I mean, because he... Victor was an elite hitter. And, of course, later in his career, what was he, first base, DH, both knees had major microfractured surgery. I mean, they just – they they wore, wore him into the ground. I mean, had he been, I think, handled earlier a little better in his career, he might have ended up being a Hall of Fame player. Uh, he was that good. Yeah, because, all that squatting and the, and yeah. the up and down and the foul mm-hmm. tips. It's just – it's and no fun And catching 145 games a year. So – um, then we went into the, you know, the wilderness of catchers who can't hit. I remember the one year Perez did hit 20 some homers, uh, but, and then he started getting hurt and he's never been able to come back. So, um, I'm interested to see how Zanino goes. And I believe Bo Naylor's had at least one home run, if not two in Columbus already. So, I mean, there's your, your future catcher. Yeah, and, and Mike Zanino, of course, on a one-year contract, mm-hmm. and if he keeps playing like this, uh, he will be making himself a lot of money, off, money in the offseason. So, um, hey, Terry, you got a, 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 a Hey Terry question the other day from a reader saying he's wondering if the owners will not like the speeding up of the games that that because they're going to lose concessions, you know, is there any other revenue they'd be losing? And he was asking, he said, I'm not a fan of the new rules, and you kind of did some research to kind of get to the bottom of some of these game times. And I was wondering if you could talk about that for a minute. Well, the idea that, uh, boy, when they come back, they've missed the pitch or two in the inning. This is not new. This has gone on a long time. In fact, a guy sent me, read that and sent me an email and said, I remember one game where they came back and Tom Hamilton said, well, we missed it. David Bell had just hit a home run. but <laughs> So we're up two to nothing here at the, you know, at the old stadium. So that's been going on for quite a while because no matter how much time they have to sell ads, they'll sell more. They'll just, they just pile it on. So I don't really care about their ad revenue. Their concessions, 
you know, they cut it off in the seventh inning. Um, what I really care about is the product, because if you want to make money, make your product attractive so that people want to watch it on TV and they want to go down to the ballpark. And the average game right now is two hours and 38 minutes. And I was convinced that games are played much faster when I was younger, but I never really researched it. You could go on Baseball Reference, and I have the link in the story, and you will find that between 1960 and 1980, the average game was right around two hours and 38 minutes, what we have now. Only they didn't need a pitch clock and all this stuff to get these guys to stand in there and bat and throw. They just did it. And so I love what I'm seeing so far. There's there's some glitches they have to work out, but these guys will adjust. And I hate this idea of, well, you know, what if a big game is decided because the hitter steps out of the box and doesn't get back in and it's strike three and he's out? Well, how many times have we seen a basketball situation, the key play of the game, that can't get a shot off in 24 seconds? And how many times have we seen in football that a key part of the game, they go to the line of scrimmage and all of a sudden, what? They can't get play the clock. playoff. Yeah. So that's part of it. This part of you know managing your time. I did not realize it until uh, I did a NPR commentary with Amanda Rabinowitz. Uh, we talked about game times and that. That's an uh, WK issue and idea stream tomorrow. But uh, Amanda's a big tennis fan, and she said, "You know, tennis now has one because all these people are forever taking between shots. They're on a twenty-five second thing." Which she said they could even make it twenty because she is a huge fan, tennis fan and. So just about the clock is everywhere. And just move the game along. Look, when they play a high-scoring game, it's over three hours. Yesterday, uh, when they were, what was the score, 12-11 or whatever it was, mm -hmm. it was three hours and like 20 minutes. Uh, the other extra inning game, it was, it was like 3.08 or something. So, But the thing is, you're getting three hours of a lot of action. It was that two-to-one game that was, you know, 3.18, and it just seemed like guys – what really would annoy me is uh, when guys would like turn to throw to first base and the guy's standing on first base, they're not even looking or, Oh yeah. How many times have we seen that? Or the guy just steps off the mound and the batter steps out. The guy steps back on the mound, the batter steps back out. I mean, enough of this garbage. So well, Terry, this is good. Yeah. And just to, to, to recap the, the game, the first four games in Seattle were 214, 305, 204. And 257. So, like you said, the more runs, the more pitching changes, the longer the games take. But 214 and 204 are are really good. And one thing I've been thinking, thinking about Terry is how the pitch clock is going to work in the postseason. Mm -hmm. And I think there's going to be an added benefit for Major League Baseball here because you, you remember back when Ugh. you were a kid and, and even like all the World Series games and a lot of the playoff games were during the day. Mm -hmm. And now these World Series games start at eight o'clock at night, and you get some of these. They're going four, four and a half hours in the fall and like they're worried about getting the younger generation of fans. There are not many like sixth, fourth grade kids who are going to be able to stay up till midnight watching a four hour playoff game. And if they can get these games moving faster, I think they're going to get younger people watching the games. Cause you know, especially kids who, who can stay that. up and I'm watch on it. Medicare. I don't want to watch a four hour <laughs> game. I'm serious. Right. I love baseball. It's my favorite sport, but I want to actually see them play baseball. This is not hard. Now, you, you always have to tinker with things a little bit, but the general idea that, one, 
I'm glad they got rid of the, the rule where you could have one pitcher throw one batter, and then here comes another pitcher, here comes another pitcher. Yeah, I like the three batter minimum. I liked, I didn't think I'd like the ghost runner on second. I like it. It brings instant um, urgency to the game. You know, do you want to bunt? How do you want to play it? I like the fact that they just, whether it's 15 seconds or 20 seconds, you know, you got to throw the ball. And just these guys are, are elite athletes. They will adjust just as they adjusted over time. By the way, the three-hour game came in during this century, during the 2000s, just as they adjusted to the fact that they could just take their good old time between every pitch and everything else. This also defies one of the things that I was told. The games are longer because, A, pitchers were nibbling more. They didn't want to throw strikes. And, B, hitters are fouling off more pitches. They may still be nibbling, and they may still be fouling them off, but this game's moving anyway. Well, they've been nibbling for 130 years, Exactly. <laughs> Nothing's and guys new have been In the old days, you know, the guys have been fouling them off forever when they have bottle bats and everything else that they would you don't even need to hear about all that but <laughs> the point being that's what so it's just garbage what they eliminated was dead time and nobody's going to miss that so all right well, so apparently opening... a few people do and they write but the rest <laughs> of us is like this is fun i mean it's fun and, and amanda robinoso i was talking to and she loves baseball and she's like this is so great you know, I mean, she's not a medica. She's middle. So he's not dancing out towards middle age. And, you know, she she actually remembered when games were quicker, like in the 80s and that. And she was interested too. the same numbers that I found to show that. By the way, they were playing like two hour games in the 1930s. Yeah. Yep. This is depression. Nobody bought any ads on anything. All right, so opening day is Friday. It looks like it's going to be 47 and sunny, which is a nice change of pace given some of the weather we've had through the years. And the Guardians are playing tonight in Oakland, continuing their series there before they come back for the home opener. So, all right, Terry, let's take a break here. When we get back, uh, I want you to talk a little bit about why the Cavs need to get slow, which I think is a really interesting point in heading into the playoffs. And I want to ask you, what is your – what do you think is the Browns' best free agent signing so far? Mm. So we'll get into that, and we have some of your Hey Terry questions. We'll do those, too, when we come back on Terry's Talking. We're back on Terry's Talking, David Campbell and Terry Pluto. Terry, let's get into the Cavs. They're 49, they have 49 wins. Uh, I think we've been talking for months about how this was a 50-win team, and it looks like they're going to get there Mm -hmm. with three games left. They're in the fourth spot in the East. That looks like pretty much a done deal, that they're going to finish fourth. Crazy things will have to happen. It also looks like almost a certainty that they're going to play the Knicks in the first round of the playoffs. The Knicks are pretty much locked into the fifth seed, so we'll be talking about that series next week as it comes up. But you had an interesting column the other day where – People were asking, like, what's going on with the Cavs? The Knicks really handed it to them the other night. And you came up with kind of a five-reason plan for why the Cavs need to get slow instead of fast and, and what that would do to them and their opponents. Why don't you get into that a little bit? Well, the Cavs play the slowest pace in the NBA. Now, in the old days, that would be a real uh, negative. That means you're playing 80-point games. You're doing that because you can't score, et cetera. The reason I wanted to slow it down in that Knicks game where they gave up 130 points is the Knicks went out and realized um, if we run these guys, we could take some of their big men out of the game. It was just absolutely uh, a travesty that in that game, 
Evan Mobley took only eight shots. He was six for eight from the field. He spent half his time running between the two foul lines because they were jacking up shots before he could. And it's not like he's slow, by the way. He can move. But they just forgot about him. And they had him mic'd up. And I remember at one point he caught this lob from Garland. He goes, that lob is there all night. And granted, it's a little bit like the receiver says, I'm always open. But most of the time, I think had they been a little patient, that lob probably would have been there most of the time. And he makes it. He'll make that shot. And as he showed the the game before that uh, in Atlanta, when he he had 20-some points and just a great all-around game, he's he's blooming right in front of our eyes. I mean, he is becoming a star. And But I remember Wayne Embry, who was a – NBA center, made several all-star teams that may had, said, you know, the, the problem when you have a big man is, um, he goes, I know there's some guys like Magic or whatever could bring the ball up. He goes, but you really have to take a little time and set him up. And the modern NBA doesn't like to do that. But when you have Jared Allen, who didn't play in the next game, and you have Mobley, you have an, a distinct advantage. Part of what has made the Cavs good is they went big when the rest of the league was going small. And they're big and athletic, not big and slow. We're not talking about the Lopez guy coming off the bench. He's got, you know, the wild hair and all that, but it's a, he's a throwback to like the 50s or 60s and how he played. No, you want these modern big men. Now, why am I so adamant about that? When you throw the ball down to your big men down low, uh, a couple of things happen. Number one, he could draw fouls. Drawing fouls is a good thing. Those guys actually are pretty decent free throw shooters. Number two, that's actually – helping your team then get into the penalty and other guys, Mitchell and so on, we can get to the foul line, make their free throws. When you throw the ball down low and other teams often are forced to double team, when your big man misses, that creates a wide open rebounding lane for somebody coming from the weak side. There's a lot of offensive rebounds to be had. So that's another thing that I really like about it. And finally, it slows the game down so your big man could get back on defense. And meanwhile, the Knicks' view was this. We don't want anybody to set up. We're going to just start firing the ball from all over the place. And think about this. Most missed three-point shots are long rebounds. And the first guy that ever told me about this was Jerry Tarkanian. I remember I was talking to Tark a long time ago. I'm going, man, Jerry, you guys are running over, and they just kind of take any shot or whatever. And he goes, well, that's the plan. I said, what? It's no plan. He goes, no, it's a plan. He goes, I could get these athletic guys. He says, those long three-pointers, long shots they miss, he goes, that's a long rebound. Now it's a race to the ball. My guys are faster than their big guys. So I want it to look that way. I want them to play our pace. I want them to feel uncomfortable running up and down. And I remember the flip side is when Mike Fratello took over the Cavs in the middle 90s. They weren't all that talented. And he said, you know what we're going to do? We're going to drag this thing right into the mud because otherwise we're going to get run off the floor. And that's how he got a couple of those teams to the playoffs. I mean, the last non-LeBron team before this one was that team in 98 where they had like Sean Kemp weighed about 40 pounds more than he should, and Bobby Phils and some of those guys, and they, um, uh, you know, they won 47 games. So a lot of times a, a, an NBA game, and I bet you might see this in hockey, one of your things, is a test of wills on the pace of the game. 
who, especially if one team wants to really go fast, the other one wants to slow down, who's going to impose their will on the game? I want the Cavs to impose their will on the game. So the game the other night, Terry, it was 130 to 116. And we, we've been talking about how scoring is up in the NBA and, there, and there's a lot more threes and everything. When we talk about the Cavs playing slow in the playoffs, do you think that it will happen organically because it's the playoffs and you know the playoffs, the pace slows down, baskets are harder to come by, teams are told, you know, you know, dunks and, and layups are going to, we're not giving up dunks and layups. We're going to foul. The, you know, the lane is a lot more congested. You know, the teams play a lot harder and a lot more physically. Do you think the slowing down will happen just because it's the playoffs? Or do you think the Cavs need to make a conscious effort or both? Whatever the, the pace down? is, I want them to play slower than the other team. That's all. I just do. Now, the other thing that's happening here, and my wife Roberta and I were watching the game, and, and I said, you know, one of the things, Donovan Mitchell can get a a halfway decent shot just about anywhere, anytime he wants. And she says, well, Garland almost can too. And suddenly the light bulb came in. Is That's part of the problem here. It's a good thing to have two guards that can create their shots anytime they want. But to them, when they're coming up, they almost always see a shot. And so then you lose the rest of your other players. So that's going to – but you want them scoring. I mean, you have to get these uh, points out of these guys. You know, if you can get – uh, 45 to 50 points out of that backcourt every night. That really helps. Um, but I didn't like, for example, the Atlanta game. I believe that the team took like 90 shots and 55 of them were between Garland and Mitchell. Uh, that That's just too much because I want those other guys to see the ball. So, And a big guy, when he sees the ball, just he just feels more in the game. Uh, so it, this is going to be a thing that JB is going to have to uh, work on. Uh, and remember, the game is sh- is so fast now. When you're playing slow, you're still playing playing fast compared to what you used to even watch f- ten or fifteen years ago. Yeah, I was just going to say, Terry. Like, we've been reading a lot about Evan Mobley, including a great story that Chris Fedor did at the start mm-hmm. of the season about his development. And it's like they have this shiny new developing toy that, mm-hmm. that that they're not using as much. And and Evan Mobley's nickname has become Fourth Quarter Ev, and it's, it's like one of the reasons is because he shines in the fourth quarter, but it's also that they don't get him as involved as they should in the first three quarters, mm-hmm. right? And that's exactly what you're saying is like they need to be conscious about getting those guys the ball early and then and then see how the game kind of evolves. I mean, it's a little different, but I recall when Michael Jordan was there with the Bulls, and oftentimes what you would see in the first quarter is Michael was getting the ball to all these other guys, Pippen and Grant. Bill Cartwright, whoever it was out there, to kind of get them involved because he knew sometimes the fourth quarter might be all Michael all the time. But he realized that the importance of that, and that's one thing that especially Phil Jackson really drilled into Michael, that you need to do that. Now, granted, Michael was not playing with anybody like uh, Darius Garland. He always had Craig Hodges or Steve Kerr, Paxson, you know, those kind of guys next to him, uh, standstill shooters. But it's still the thought process was, let's do this early. And he would do that a lot in the uh, games. And the other thing Michael discovered is by playing that way, he had more energy later in the game. So it worked out in two ways. So I wouldn't mind seeing some of that with Donovan where he's looking, you know, to get the ball into some of those other guys uh, as opposed to – it's hard to imagine just – 
when you're that good, like Donovan Mitchell, who I did not realize, Mike Fratello kept telling me, Terry can get a shot anytime he wants. This is before he came here. He goes, you just got to see it. And he said, people don't know how good he is and how strong going to the rim. And that's the thing about him. He could he can go to get to the rim anytime, just about. He goes through two guys. And he has this move now where he drops his shoulder square into the chest of the defender. The official doesn't know what to do. General is probably a charge half the time. But they give him the foul. Or they don't call it. It's like bowling pins, you know, going apart. So that's a key thing there. Meanwhile, Garland is so crafty. His ability to play angles and start the bank shots. I mean, these guys... Where I think you're really going to see them uh, bloom together is next year because then they'll have gone through a full season and the playoffs. We'll see how it goes. Meantime, we're talking about a team that's going to win 50 games. What they're doing with the young roster is, is just remarkable. It's absolutely astounding when they went from after the, the rubble of LeBron leaving to this within four years. Great point about the Michael Jordan Bulls, Terry. I, I really think that's that's smart, and I think that's a good approach that they, those guys could take. Because I mean, Evan Mobley is not going to bring the ball up and pass it to himself. So no. And then <laughs> and once in a while, you see he gets frustrated, he takes the ball off the court himself, and sometimes it works, but sometimes it doesn't. And um, you know, I love the fact I'd love to see Evan gets a rebound, throws it out to one of the guards. Now. The, he, the guard gets the ball. He just goes a little slower pace, allowing Evan to get on the wing. Evan Mobley flying from the wing at seven foot, getting a lob or getting there. Who is going to stop that? At the very least, he gets fouled. All right. Well, playoffs are coming, Terry. This is the last week of the regular season. The Cavs. By the way, Cavs. you know, oh, yeah, I good. don't really feel strongly about any of that. <laughs> It was just worth a five-minute rant, but it was just an off, offhand comment, right? Yeah, it's just – no, I, I feel very strongly, just like I feel very strongly about uh, the job that Kobe and Mike Gansey and uh, JB have done. Um, I never expected this to work out. I mean, if we were sitting here even at this point last year, uh, much less two years ago. Two years ago, Kobe ultimately could have gotten fired because – at the end of that year, I think they were in 22 games or whatever it was. And the, all of a sudden, we're waiting for the postseason press conference. Usually, that's within a day or two. A week went by. Yep. Two weeks went by. And finally, they had one. So something odd was going on there. And thank goodness, Dan Gilbert stuck with Altman, which then, you know, he had at that point, he had traded for Jared Allen. But the other pieces, and he had drafted Garland, but Garland was finally starting to show, show something. We had no clue it was coming. And then, of course, Mobley drops into their lap, and then the, the Mitchell trade and some other things. So uh, it's uh, it's just phenomenal. I, I, I still believe that's underappreciated by a number of the fans, what's happened here so quickly. And they know all the stuff we're talking about. They know the pace of play. They know who's getting oh, sure. shots where and all that stuff. So they, they will take the, all that into account, and we'll see if they adjust. So, All right, Terry, the last week of the regular season, the Cavs are at Orlando tonight and Thursday, tonight being Tuesday, and then they wrap up the regular season at home on Sunday against Charlotte. That's a 1 p.m. tip. And then the Knicks, more than likely, like 90%. Looks like it's going to happen. So, all right, let's move to the Browns, Terry. Uh Free agency is still happening, happening, and we saw today a report 
that OBJ might be, he has gotten a contract from the Ravens. So we'll see if OBJ is going to be back was, in the, I thought, it was, I thought it was the Bengals. Nope. It was the Ravens. Yeah. And maybe he might, he might've gotten one from the Bengals too. That we. Oh really? I, yeah. I don't know. I hadn't seen that. Oh, okay. <laughs> But wouldn't that be something if he ended up in the AFC North? But anyway, talking about the Browns free agents, we've seen them really bolster the defensive line. They've really tried to fill the receiver room with a lot of different types of players um, who can stretch the field in different ways. What's, what do you think is the best free agent signing that the Browns have made so far this offseason? There's a lot to choose from here. Okay, if, if, big, the, one of the biggest little words in the in the English language, if Juan Thornhill is this ball-chasing center fielder that they say he is, who also is a good tackler, I would say it's him. Because this is something that they have been looking for since I don't know who. You'd have to go, but, you know, who was, I mean, like Eric Turner was a hard-hitting safety, but I don't remember him being, in fact, he had bad hands. He used to joke about that. Um, They haven't had really great safeties here forever. And if this guy can become that player, because, you know, John Johnson didn't didn't do it. And and he went through, oh, I'm having an old, who was the first round pick that the, the angel and Greg Williams' defense that used to play real back there. Jabril Peppers. Yeah, Jabril Peppers, who actually has turned out to be an okay player, but he didn't end up being the, the big difference maker. Um, Andrew Sade, no. <laughs> you know, I mean, just go through. I just think it's a it's an underrated position if you can get that guy. So I agree completely. That was going to be my pick too. And the thing that the Browns have been missing and we saw that how many times did we see this last year, a a good safety can turn a 40 yard gain into a 14 yard gain Mm -hmm. by coming up and making a big tackle on a, on a a pass that's going down the seam and he's the last line of defense or a running play. How many running plays did we see last year that, that went for way more yards than they should have because the safeties couldn't come up and fill. I just think he's going to be, they need an eraser back there. Someone who can erase mistakes. Mm -hmm. And I feel like he's the guy who can make the biggest difference on that defense. And my number two guy would probably be Delvin Tomlinson. I, I think. Yeah, Tomlinson. Yeah, he's uh, he's, a, he's a great guy in the locker room. And beyond that, he's got a, an awesome motor on the field. He's always go, go, go. Big mm-hmm. guy, can take up a gap. And I think he's going to be a really good fit for that. And my third would be Posick. Mm. Because don't underestimate the center. You know, uh, Agbo was their other, obviously, their big move. I know people like receivers talk about more, some of these other guys, but um, these guys are the ones where you're talking about a safety, a defensive tackle, and to keep that offensive line together, Posick. So I think that's, uh, those are my three. Um, And I just don't know enough about the analytics people and, some sites where some hardcore football guys do write for is uh, the 33rd team, by the way, which is owned primarily by Mike Tannenbaum and Joe Banner, by the way. Mm-hmm. Um, they like Agbo quite a bit, too. They think he's right. They're getting the Browns are getting him right at the exact uh, correct time uh, as a pass rusher. I know that Andrew Berry wanted to get somebody. It wasn't just a one year rental. And, you know, they were they had. Uh, uh, obviously that clowny, but I was trying to think of the guy before that. It's the guy they got from the from the Giants, and the poor guy blew his Achilles, um, and so he was a defensive end before that. And so they basically basically been trying to fill that other spot with a veteran for a while. That uh, and they've never developed any chemistry across from Miles Garrett. 
Well, one of the things that I think they're they're thinking is a lot of these guys are, that they're signing will make the other guys better. Sure. Like, you know, Agbo Okoronkwo is going to make Miles Garrett better because all the double teams won't go his way all the time. Tomlinson's going to make the linebackers better. Maurice Hurst is going to make the linebackers better. Thornhill can make the guys around him better. He'll be a good mentor for Delpit, who's still a young player. So I think you're right, Terry. There's a lot of kind of side benefits that they're going to get from some of these guys. I mean, I, I got an email from a guy, but I, I should answer this or whatever. And he goes, well, I just don't think that after all these free agent signings, the Browns are that much better. Well, make a list of who they lost and who they've added. And tell me why that wouldn't be a substantial upgrade. Because basically, when you talk about who they've lost, you're you're talking about Clowney and you're talking about who? John Johnson? Yeah. Um, nobody else of note, really, right? Yeah. Am I missing somebody? Yeah, I mean, look at, think about the starters. Yeah. No. Nobody. So, there, so then you turn around, you're adding Thornhill, you're adding Tomlinson, you're adding Agbo, you're adding um, Moore, you're adding um, Atkins, um, Akins, rather, and you brought back Taki Taki, although we have to see how that goes because he's coming off an ACL. Um it's better. It's be- It's flat out better. Now, is it great? We'll find out later. But it's better. And I, I, and believe me, I'm you know I I could get as jaded on the Browns as anybody else, but I also can't sit there and, and pretend that here we're taping on Tuesday and pretend it's Wednesday just because I want it to be Wednesday. You know, the reality is it's Tuesday, and the reality is when you add Thornhill and Tomlinson and Agbo and Atkins, and you add bring back Posick and you add more who can run and you add, bring back AJ Green, who I kind of like a little bit as a special teams guy. And you brought in a, a couple other pretty good special teams players whose names uh, escape me at the moment. Um, that is a big upgrade on top of the fact you've replaced two, um, I would say average at best coordinators, Joe Woods and Mike Prefer with, the guy that's considered one of the best young special teams coordinators in Ventrone and an established, I would say B plus to A minus defensive coordinator in Jim Schwartz. It's better. It's just it better. better. Michael Ford is the special teams guy. You were yes. Thinking that of. was the and, guy I was trying to. And Terry, it all comes down to, they were putting guys on the field that I don't know that they could trust last yeah. year. And you look at all these guys they brought in, they're all established pros that have shown they can be trusted to do the job. And, and that, I want to see that's a huge difference. Here will be a big thing too. If Thornhill's doing his job, we won't get four guys pointing at each other on a busted coverage. Now, once in a while it happens. I mean, it's just the nature of football. But that was like, you know, an occurrence like 10 out of the 17 games. Oh, for sure. And, and that can't I mean, happen. Big time busted coverages, including the Steeler game at the end of the year, just to, just to make sure if you if he needed the whipped cream and cherry on that awful tasting Sunday, there it was. One more busted coverage just for on the way out. Uh, well, it's hard to believe, Terry, the draft is coming up at the end of the month, and then we'll be heading into mini camps and training camps. So it's going to come pretty quickly. So, all right, you ready for some Hey Terry questions? Sure. All right. This first one is a Cavs question. And it comes from Shane M. in Knoxville, Tennessee. Boy, we have listeners all over the place, Terry. This mm-hmm. is really fun to hear from people all over. He says, hey, Terry and David, I can't remember a Cavs team that's been so fun to follow as this group. I obviously, obviously love the success of the LeBron-era Cavs, but it has been a joy to watch this team grow and mesh together. One thing that struck me recently was the difference in the home and away record of the team. 
They've been dominant at home, 31-9 and nine as of today, and are just a half game behind the Bucks for the, well, this was a while ago, for the best home record in the East, he says. Their away record is 18-21, and 21, which is one of the worst among the Eastern Conference teams. I have two questions. How does that road record compare to other young teams at a similar point in development? Is there any cause for concern in the playoffs where winning on the road is necessary for success? Thank you both for what you do as a born and raised Clevelander who now lives out of state. This podcast is a way to stay connected to my teams and hometown. Keep up the great work. Thanks for that, Shane. So Shane's question is like, I guess, twofold, Terry. Why is the Cavs record so poor and will it matter in the playoffs? And I got a little research I can throw in here too down down in a minute here. So go ahead. Okay. Well, the last time I saw the stats in game seven of a playoff series, or game five, if that's a deciding game, the home team wins something like 73% of the time. Now, you could argue part of the reason is that the team has the home court advantage because it's the better team. But I also will say I have seen some blowouts in those game sevens because of the fact that you're just at home. Uh, it, it may sound a little um, naive, but it's kind of like playing in your own driveway or your own favorite outdoor court as opposed to going across town and playing somewhere else. You know, it, it's just a comfortable environment. Now, officials are human, and now that call goes. You could go either way, a charge or a foul, and you know one way or the other which way the response is going to be, and you're not sure. Um, now, there are a few officials by the way, uh, uh, Foster is one now that prides himself on having a really good road uh, record. Well, that's the thing to look at, how these officials are home versus road. Um, but in general, most of these guys tend to go with the flow of the game. When you're playing at home, you tend in the playoffs especially, you tend to play harder, and the, the officials go reward the team that's playing harder, and that just comes in there. And then the, there also is just a shooting background. A hundred years ago when I was on the Cavs beat, David, and sometimes uh, after they would have shoot-arounds, the sports writers would go out and just you know kind of play half court or whatever. And we would do this in San Antonio and some places like that. And the shooting backgrounds are much different. They really are. Because I couldn't shoot anyway, so it wouldn't matter. But they still <laughs> look different. And, and I'm sure it are for the players. So uh, I think that's just whereas, yeah, that I, I suppose in in um, in football, there are some nuances with the stadium, especially for kickers. But in general, you know, you're out there in the field, it's 100 yards and that's what it is. Baseball might be a little bit of the hitting background, but I just think basketball, because the fans are right on top of the officials and everything else, they have more of an impact. Wow, there's a lot there. And you're right, Terry, the, the officials think there have been studies done that show that it's it's not a conscious thing, but just yeah. referees tend to favor the home team just slightly when the when the team's playing at home. So that that's a legit thing that's that's been kind of clinically researched. So it's human um, nature. Human yeah. nature. So how many teams in the NBA do you think this season, Terry, have an above five hundred record on the road? Again, we're taping this on Tuesday. I'm gonna afternoon. guess six. You got it exactly right. Really? Yeah. That's just kind of like um, I figured, you know, you're looking at uh, 30 teams. Is it 30 teams or 32? I think 30, yeah. 30. It's like 25% of them tend to tend to have. That's why I went with that, you know. Yeah, so it's Milwaukee, Boston, Philly, and the Knicks. The Knicks are 23 and 16 on the road. And then Brooklyn is 21 and 19 on the road. And the Kings, the Sacramento Kings, probably the surprise the big, team in the, in the West, yeah. 24 and 14. So That's a big surprise to me. 
because Mike Brown, who was the slow-it-down defensive guru, has gone over there and chanted his inner Jerry Tarkanian, and they are just running and gunning all over the place. By the way, Mike Brown told me a number of years ago, he turned down the UNLV job you know, because they came open periodically because he, he really wanted to get back in the NBA. I believe his son played a year there, Elijah, hmm. and um, they were looking for a coach because they've been struggling uh, to find somebody. And uh, he he did he did turn that down, but he but anyway he picked that up and he gets that job and sa- and I'm so glad Mike Brown's one of the finest people that you all met. You know when Mike Brown was fired here one of the times, he spent a year helping out the JV football team at St. Ed's. I mean that was just him. He's a natural, just a coach of guys. So I'm so happy for him. But I never would have expected, because I think they're among the highest scoring teams in the NBA, that they would be that good on the road. You could have won a ton of money for me on that one. Yeah, for sure. So the Cavs are the only top six seed in the East that have a losing road record, to get back to mm-hmm. the question. Memphis, which is the number two seed in the West, they're 15 and 23 on the road, which mm-hmm. I thought was interesting. So anyway, Terry, getting back to what we were being asked here by Shane, I went back and I was looking up. I was trying to pick a team, and so I picked the Bucks. All right, team all right. that's won the NBA Finals, and I wanted to see what their road record looked like as they progressed. Um, and basically from 2016 to 17 to when they won the finals in 2021, right? So there's okay. one, two, three, there's five seasons there. They went 19 and 22 on the road, 19 and 22 on the road, 27 and 14 on the road, 26 mm. and 12 on the road. And then when they won the NBA finals, it was uh, it was the, it was a COVID affected season. They were 20 and 16 on the road the year they won the finals. Um, and then last season they were 24 and 17. They lost in the Eastern conference semis to Boston. So you can see a progression there. They went from below 500 to over 500 on the road, but um, I don't know. You can still win playoff games without having a great regular season road record. It's kind of a different animal, right? There's, yeah. You're not playing no. two games in three nights. You're not flying everywhere. Yeah. Oh yeah. The playoff schedule is more spaced out. It's a, it's kind of a different animal, isn't it? Yeah, it, it, it is. And that's why LeBron never cared whether they were home or away. He didn't care where they were seated. He just wanted to be in the playoffs. Of course, LeBron, you know, LeBron was one of those players that, like Michael Jordan and a couple others, that even when he was on the road, he kind of had the home effect because there were people that would cheer for him across the country and cheer for his team. So that's a an, another factor that comes to play. Um, I'm just so thrilled we're talking about the playoffs. <laughs> I really am. The fans are too, yeah. Yeah, I just – and the and and the fourth seed is not like they backed in or you know like last year if they'd have somehow got in there would have been nice but uh, you know they were stumbling across the gate. All right, well thanks for that question. Here's our next one. We're running a little bit late here, Terry. So we're going to get to this one quickly. Um, this one is from David Camposano. He's living in New Jersey. He says he's originally from Ashtabula. He says I'm just wondering about your thoughts on the NFL penalties. Whenever it's close to the goal line, it's always half the distance to the goal line. There are times that the ball is moved a quarter inch. <laughs> I'm joking, but you know what I mean. Pretty close. <laughs> what are your thoughts on changing that rule to on defense? If the defense commits another penalty and the ball is already right at the goal line, the offense gets another down. 
So if it was third and goal, now Ooh. it's second and goal. Ooh. And if it's second and goal and another penalty happens, it's now first and goal. Ooh. On offense, if the offense commits another penalty, the offense loses a down. So if it was second and whatever, it's now third and whatever. And if they commit a penalty on fourth down, it's a safety. <laughs> Anyway, uh, he's so David's asking us, what do you think of, of, of changing the penalty rule so that when it's down inside the one yard line that, that things are different? So this kind of makes sense for the defensive team. Yeah, the offensive, not the offensive one, no. right? No, yeah. I mean, because it, it doesn't matter if it's five yards or 15 yards, you're going backwards. You're going so, back, right. Yeah, it makes it harder. Um, defensively, though, because, I mean, there's a they always say there's a reason to – I mean, you could just keep committing pass interference plays in the end zone in every single play if you want to without giving up any points. Yeah, for sure. I think that's what I've David's seen it, getting I've seen at. it back yeah. to back. I've seen it happen on back to back plays. Um, it's funny. This made me think of uh, Buddy Ryan, who was the defensive coordinator for the the '85 Bears, and when he went on to coach uh, at other places. Um, he, he had this defense where down on the goal line, when the defense was backed up on the one yard line, he would put 13 or 14 guys on the field. And if it was toward the end of a, end of the half or end of the yeah. game, he would, he would, he wouldn't care about a penalty. He'd put forth. He wanted to put 14 guys on the field to make them run a play and run clock. And then the clock would run out. And then on the last play, he'd put 11 out and they, and basically the NFL like <laughs> saw this starting to happen. And that's why they changed the rule where now, if you have 12 guys on the field on defense, they blow it dead immediately. Well, right but, yeah. But this kind of, it's a good question, David. I, I wonder if they could do that on defense where you gain a down instead of I think uh, so. four inches. I, I, or something. I like that part of it. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, thanks for that question. Hey, if you want to hit us with a question or comment about anything having to do with Cleveland sports, you can shoot us an email. That's probably the easiest way to send it to sports at cleveland.com and put Terry's talking in the headline. We'll try and get it on as soon as we can. So, all right, Terry, we got to wrap up here. Anything else we want to get into? That's it. Nothing going on. Opening day in baseball. The Guardians are good so far and the Cavs are going to win 50 games. So I don't want to hear any whining. That's no right. The weather, the weather for the home opener looks really good. Yeah. So. <laughs> All right. Well, listen, everybody, enjoy the home opener. If you're out there, uh, it's Easter on Sunday. Enjoy Easter if you are among those who celebrate. And we'll catch you next week on Terry's Talking.